Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well. Today I would like to brief you on why it is reasonable and right to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. Christianity is often thought about by some people to be a fairy tale and for Jesus' death and resurrection to be some kind of made-up myth, but I think when you start to look at the evidence, when you start to look at the facts, and when you start to look at the scriptures, I think a different story comes out. And so today, I want to brief you on some of the evidences for Christ's death and resurrection and what that means. So it's not meant to be a comprehensive look. Uh, it's just meant to be a taste so that you can go and investigate for yourself the claims of Jesus in Christianity. And so we're going to start with some external sources from history. We're going to look at internal sources in the Bible, particularly the uh, eyewitness accounts in the New Testament, prophecies in the Old, and then we'll have a conclusion with some resources for you to do your own research. So follow with me as we look first at the account of Josephus, the Jewish historian. He was alive from 37 to 100 AD, and here's his account about Jesus. At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one shall call him a man. For he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him and previously did not cease to do so, for he appeared to them on the third day, living again, just as the divine prophets had spoken of these and countless other wondrous things about him. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So this is a pretty amazing account by Josephus. He wrote about the Jewish people. He writes about a lot of other events that the Bible also testifies to in the Old and New Testament, including people like John the Baptist and Herod, as well as Pilate. And this account that he has written about Jesus, some have a pretty skeptical eye on. They think it's been tampered with. Um, but the majority of this account is considered by scholars to be authentic. So this is one external history corroborating Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Another is Tacitus. Tacitus was considered to be one of the greatest Roman historians. Um, he lived in 56 AD to 120 AD. When he was explaining Nero's blaming of Christians for a fire that happened in Rome about 64 AD, here's how he described Christians. Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures those whom the common people called Christians, hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Suppressed for the moment, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all sorts of horrendous and shameful practices from every part of the world converge and are fervently cultivated. So here Tacitus, this uh, well-known historian, 
speaks about Christians, and he doesn't speak about them in a good light, but he does confirm for us a couple of facts that the New Testament also confirms. First of all, that Jesus was in Judea, that he was during that he existed during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and that he was executed by Pontius Pilate. Not only that, but though the superstition was quelled for a moment, it said, he says that it broke out again. What caused it to break out? What this what Tacitus is saying really corroborates what the New Testament says, that though it was quelled by Jesus' death, it broke out again. This superstition broke out again because of an empty tomb three days later, confirming Jesus, uh, what Jesus and the scriptures said would happen. Another interesting detail from the New Testament Talking about when Jesus died, there was this darkness that all of the synoptic gospel writers write about at Jesus' crucifixion. And I just want to read a couple of accounts um, interacting with historians who were writing about and confirming this odd period of darkness that exists in the New Testament. Uh, two of them are through the writings of Africanus, okay? There are second and third hand histories, so they're not as weighty as Josephus or Tacitus. But listen to Africanus. It says, according to Sincellus, Africanus writes in the third book of his history, Talus, so this is another historian, um, calls this darkness an eclipse of the sun, wrongly, in my opinion. So here, Africanus is interacting with Talus, and he quotes Talus, talking about the eclipse, uh, the darkness being an eclipse, and he disagrees with him. Uh, another example, another historian that Africanus writes is Phlegon. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth. And so, again, another historian says that there was this eclipse during the time of Tiberius Caesar. And Africanus, I believe, explains that it couldn't have been an eclipse because of the timing of the moon. Um, another writer, Origen, who was an early church theologian, also interacted with Phlegon or Phlegon or whatever his name is. Uh, he wrote, he imagines also that both the earthquake and the darkness were an invention. But regarding these, we have in the preceding pages made our defense according to our ability, adducing the testimony of Phlegon, who relates that these events took place at the time when our Savior died. And so here we have secondhand accounts confirming not just Jesus' death, but the darkness that the Bible describes coming over the land while Jesus was dying. Even Jesus' death was validated by his opponents, by even uh, the Jewish commentaries called the Talmud write about Jesus, uh, his existence, and his death. Two sources stated um, that Jesus practiced magic and that he led Israel astray. So here we have this indirect uh, acknowledgement that Jesus was doing signs and miracles. Um, it also acknowledges the Talmud that he was hanged on the day before the Passover. So during the Passover time, Jesus was hanged on the cross. Uh, another account was a Syrian philosopher named Marabar Serapion um, writes from prison to his son um, and pretty early on. 
And here's what he wrote. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. So obviously, uh, this philosopher didn't believe that Jesus was anything but a wise king, but that by that point in time, some of those details are already known. So there's many other histories that speak about Jesus' life. He wasn't a fairy tale. He's a real person and a real historical figure. Uh, now we're going to look at some internal witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, the New Testament is made up of eyewitness accounts that are consistent internally and externally. So we read about Jesus' death in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, let me give you one example of how they are internally consistent. Uh, they're medically consistent. So Luke writes about Jesus in Gethsemane. And it says that as he was praying in Gethsemane before the cross, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So in the case for Christ, there's a section on just the medical explorations of the crucifixion. And here, Lee Strobel writes that there was a known medical condition called hematidrosis. It was rare. It, and uh, it comes under intense mental stress where a person's sweat would intermingle with blood and come out the pores of their skin. And this would result in Jesus' skin being very sensitive. Later, his extreme blood loss from being flogged um, the next day would cause him also to faint on the road as well as thirst on the cross. Um, both of these are mentioned in the eyewitness accounts and they're consistent medically with what would have been happening with Jesus. Another example of this is coming from John's gospel as he is watching Christ die on the cross. Here's what he says. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so here is John writing about what he saw about Jesus' death and resurrection. And he notices that blood and water came out from Jesus' side when he is pierced. And he, John was not a medical doctor. He wouldn't have understood what that was, but he wrote about it in his gospel. Also, they didn't break his legs, which was customary at crucifixions, but the soldiers pierced him in the side, which in and of itself fulfilled two scriptures that Jesus uh, legs wouldn't be broken, just like the Passover lamb wasn't allowed, they weren't allowed to break the bones of the Passover lamb, and also for his sigh to be pierced. Now, medically speaking, failure of the heart leads to a collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart, and this is called pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called pleural effusion. And so it creates this clear fluid that would look like water. And this is what was happening to Jesus when they pierced him with the side. Also, 
very con very <laughs> conclusively showing Jesus died on the cross. And this also confirms to us that these are eyewitness accounts. They're not some distance made-up fairy tales, but these guys saw Jesus die on the cross. The next, um, the took the body was taken by Jesus' enemies, and they sealed it in a tomb. Now, the custom, the custom of the time, the stone would be sealed only in the presence of Roman guards who were left in charge. The purpose of this procedure was to prevent anyone from tampering with the grave's contents. After the guard inspected the tomb and rolled the stone in place, a cord was stretched across the rock and fastened at either end with sealing clay. Finally, the clay packs were stamped with the official signet of the Roman government. And so they would seal the tomb. It's guarded by soldiers. Now, three days later, the New Testament accounts show that the tomb is empty. The guarded stone is rolled away. The disciples had been in hiding, and the body is gone. Not only that, the linen was left behind, and angels are there testifying to his resurrection. And so that's why we read in the gospel accounts, when they come to the tomb, angels say, he is not here. He is risen, just as he had said. Um, and then after this, we see in the New Testament accounts, hundreds of eyewitnesses say they saw him alive after his death. What does this mean? This means that Jesus has risen, and he is risen indeed. Furthermore, though the body was in the hands of his enemies, the enemies could not stop the, the superstition breaking out again because they didn't have the body. They couldn't produce the body to show that Jesus had not risen from the dead. So this is compelling evidence, and this is exactly what the New Testament writers um, describe is their own eyewitness accounts. Here's what John says in, in 1 John chapter 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. See, the New Testament writers weren't making up cleverly devised myths. They were describing what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had touched. And they claimed they saw and touched Jesus alive after his death on the cross. Another account, Luke writes about when Jesus appears to them. They were scared. They thought they had seen a spirit. And Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Pretty hard to fake something like that. We have the story of Doubting Thomas putting his fingers in the scars of Jesus' wrists and in the side where he had been pierced because they couldn't believe their eyes that Jesus had risen from the dead. And these are the kind of claims and the proofs that the New Testament gives. And not only that, all of the disciples go to their deaths proclaiming that they were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. 
Andrew was crucified in Petrus, Greece. Bartholomew, who was called Nathaniel, was flayed to death with whip in Armenia. James the Just was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death in Jerusalem. James the Greater was beheaded in Jerusalem. John died in exile on the island of Patmos. Luke was hanged in Greece. Mark was dragged by horses until he died in Alexandria, Egypt. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Um, one was stoned and then, and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter was crucified in Fergia. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. All of these suffered for proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, and none of them change course. So this provides compelling evidence for us, because for eyewitnesses, if they're claiming to be eyewitnesses, but they're lying, they made it up. Somehow they were able to get a hold of the body, and it's a hoax. Why would they go to the grave to their deaths, not recanting of a lie? Who would die for a lie? I think what we see is compelling change by solid evidence that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Son of God, and that he was really sent by God to die for sins and to raise from the dead. So here we've seen, we've got external sources, we've seen the internal eyewitness accounts. Now we're going to look at God's witness of Jesus' death and resurrection. And this, to me, is some of the most compelling um, of all evidences for Christ's death and resurrection. And it's the prophecy is that God foretold Jesus' death and resurrection. God foretold in all of the scriptures, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came, that his son would come and die and raise from the dead. And so we have examples like the serpent crusher in Genesis 3, or in Isaiah that he, he would be born of a virgin, and like Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be born in David's royal line, um, that he would be pierced in his hands and his feet, uh, which was a prophecy written before crucifixion had even been invented yet that his clothing would be gambled away, um, that he'd be crucified to pay for our sins, that he'd be crucified with criminals, that he'd be buried with a rich man, um, that he would be pierced in his side, that he would rise from the dead. The timing and purpose of Jesus' coming is even prophesied in the book of Daniel, which was 600 years um, before Jesus came. It's prophesied to the day, the timing that Jesus would come. And also the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is also prophesied in the same passage. And so these are incredible accounts, and I think you need to go and investigate the scriptures, what they say about Jesus. I'm going to give you a taste of two. One is a psalm written by David about 1000 BC. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is exactly what Jesus said when he was on the cross, and they mistook him. They thought he was saying something else. He was actually quoting Psalm 22. All who seek me, or who see me, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. These, if you go and read about Jesus' death, these very things, it sounds like we're reading the history of Jesus' crucifixion, but this was written by David a thousand years beforehand, that his bones would be out of joint. That's what happens in crucifixion. His heart like wax, or the tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth, is dehydration from blood loss, the piercing of his hands and his feet before crucifixion had been invented yet. Um, this garment's being gambled for, divided. Uh, this is incredible prophecy about Jesus' death and resurrection. Another incredible prophecy is Isaiah 53, written about 700 B.C., and I'm going to read the whole account. Um, and it prophesies not just Jesus' death and his death for sins, but his resurrection. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors so here in isaiah 53 we have an account of jesus being wounded for our sins crushed and um, that by his stripes we'd be healed that he'd be oppressed and he was taken away in a judgment trial that he was cut off from the land of the living that his grave was with criminals and with the wicked that he'd be a rich man in his death that's joseph of arimathea laid in a brand new tomb in which no one had been laid that he had spoken nothing at his trials um and then it also talks about jesus resurrection it says when his soul makes an offering for sin he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And another place, uh, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's writing as if this servant who suffers is alive again, because it's writing about Jesus of Nazareth. So when we think about this, what does it mean if Jesus has not risen? Here's what Paul wrote. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, that means the Christian's faith is futile. 
It means that there is no provision for their sins, for the wrongs that they have done. It means that there's no redemption. And uh, it means that there's, there's no hope beyond the grave. Um, and that Christians are the most to be pitied. In fact, if a person does not believe that Jesus has not risen from the dead, they are not a Christian. They're not a Christian. Uh, because Christ's resurrection is the bedrock of our faith. And the truth is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And because of this, there is victory over death. As um, Paul wrote, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, if Jesus has risen from the dead, that means that there is life after death. That means that death is not the end and death is not the victor, but Christ is. And that means that he's going to do away with death and he has done away with sin through his crucifixion. And it also means that there is a judgment. It means that there's going to be a judgment for the living and the dead, that God is going to repay each person according to what he has done. And the wages of sin is death. And so there's going to be a day where God is going to settle up with us. And here's what Paul writes about Christ's resurrection. It says that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now this needs to concern you and me because we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have said no to God and yes to us. I have lied. I have stolen. I have lusted and committed um, adultery in my heart. I have murdered in my heart by hating other people. I have coveted. I have worshipped other things more than God. I am a lawbreaker and a sinner on my own. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. God is holy and just, which means he is going to deal with sin. And what I deserve is punishment and separation away from him in hell. That's what the Bible describes is for those who have committed sin. This is what we deserve. This is why God sent Jesus to die. He died for our sins as a substitute for your sins and mine. That's why Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That by his stripes, we are healed. God loves us and does not want any of us to perish, but to repent. And he's made provision to be able to forgive us through Christ's dying and paying the punishment that you and I deserve. And this is why Paul writes in um, Acts 10, to him... All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what are we to do with Jesus' death and resurrection? We are to believe it. We are to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. And the promise to you is that you have forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. And so today, Repent and believe in Jesus. God has provided ample evidence for Jesus, for his existence and for Jesus' death and resurrection. And he calls you and I to turn and repent and to receive forgiveness of sins. Because there will be a day when he will judge the world and he will judge you and me. And you do not want to die in your sins on that day. And so if you are interested in looking into 
some of these things. The, what I would recommend is first reading the Bible and asking God to show you whether the things in it are true. For God to show you the truth and read the Bible, read the New Testament, read about Jesus and his life in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. But a couple other books, Cold Case Christianity by Warner Wallace, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, and The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel are all great resources. But thank you for taking the time and listening to this briefing on Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. And you and I really need to come to a decision and wrestle with the evidence and with the truth about what happened that day at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Thank you.